0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This Doe case is unusual in that the original police reports are so spotty, it's not clear who actually found the human remains that came to be known as Granby Girl. All the early newspaper reports at the time tell the same story, that a man, hired by a private property owner to cut firewood in a wooded area of Granby, Massachusetts, found the skeletal remains of a girl or young woman. However, there is a name in the scanned police file of a girl who, at the time, on Wednesday, November fifteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, claimed to be playing in the woods with some other kids when, around five p.m., they saw bones sticking out from under leaves beneath a fallen log. So it's unclear which story is true, but what we do know to be true is that human bones were found in the woods, and a forty-plus-year mystery began. Authorities called to the scene said they couldn't tell at first whether the remains were a man or a woman. There was no identification of any sort on the body or at the scene. Furthermore, the body was badly decomposed, almost completely skeletonized. However, clothing still clinging to the remains and long brown hair found attached to the skull led to theories that it was a woman. The body was removed, and later the medical examiner determined that all the parts had been located and recovered, to Ryder Funeral Home in South Hadley Falls. An autopsy was conducted there by forensic pathologist George Katzis, with observation of the procedure by the medical examiner, Dr. William J. Dean, Jr. of Holyoke. The deceased was a Caucasian woman, and she had been shot once in the head. The office of the medical examiner ruled officially that the cause of death was a bullet wound to the left temple. The manner of death was homicide. No weapon was found at the scene, and no bullet either. The bullet had passed entirely through the skull leaving a large exit wound on the right side of the victim's head, and it wasn't recovered. There were no other notable injuries to the body, although, absent the tissue, there was no way to determine whether the victim had other wounds. In the same vein, the pathologist was unable to make a determination as to whether a sexual assault had occurred because of the level of decomposition of the victim. The medical examiner estimated that the Jane Doe had been dead anywhere from three months to a year. As for her physical attributes... Jane Doe was estimated to be approximately five foot four, and to have medium-length brown hair. Her eye color was unknown. She was of huskier build, size 14 to 16, and she exhibited significant tooth decay in her front teeth. A forensic dentist, Dr. Stanley Schwartz, helped determine that her age was likely between 19 and 27. Despite this age range, the moniker given to her of Granby Girl stuck and she would be known that way for the next four decades. As I said, clothing was found with the woman's remains, and it was noted to be in fairly decent condition, as described by then-Hampshire Franklin District Attorney John Callahan. The clothing items consisted of the following, newish men's jeans, size 36 waist, 31 length. According to the Daily Hampshire Gazette, a back pocket on the pants is ripped, and there are tears at the inside bottom of the right leg, apparently made by having been caught in a bicycle chain, end quote. A size 14 navy blue shell or sleeveless top of synthetic material with a vertical ribbed pattern. A black windbreaker, unlined and with a front zipper. Lace up brown vinyl shoes, which look like wedge-style Oxfords, size 8 or eight and a half. Over the navy shell, a distinctive short-sleeved yellow, white, and green polka dot shirt with a green swan appliqué onto it. The swan was approximately four inches by four inches and sat in the middle of the chest. The size approximately 14 chemise has a Peter Pan-style green imitation suede collar. Police described it as a unique piece of clothing. Granby Girl also wore a black bra and underwear. None of the clothing contained labels except for the bra, which was a common brand. Something else was found at the scene, something disturbing. An undistinguished men's brown leather belt was around the neck area of the woman's body. An estimated five inches of the belt were missing, and of the five notches in the belt, two were handmade. It seems as though the belt was entirely too large for someone, so they cut it down and then added two holes to allow them to cinch it tighter. The belt was looped around the skeleton's neck, yet her neck wasn't broken. Investigators concluded that the belt was likely not used to strangle Granby Girl, but rather she'd been shot in the head somewhere else and then dragged by the belt about one-eighth of a mile or 600 feet to where she was found. Speaking of that, let's talk about where Granby Girl was found either by kids or a woodcutter. The remains were located on a logging road behind 230 Amherst Street. The logging road jutted off from Amherst Street about a half mile from heavily trafficked Route 116, in a rural area of western Massachusetts between South Hadley and Amherst. This area, though rural, is populated by several local colleges. Two-lane Route 116 is a major connector between Smith College, Mount Holyoke College, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Amherst College. Also, a popular hiking trail was nearby. While I-91 was about 20 minutes away, it's believed that only a local would know the specific place where Granby Girl was dumped. Whoever dragged her body using the belt around her neck had pulled off Amherst Street onto the logging road and dragged her one-eighth mile into the woods to where she lay. Her killer likely covered her with leaves and possibly dragged a log onto her to hide her, or a log fell onto her during the time before she was discovered. There was one more clue found with the remains. The ring finger of Granby Girl's left hand was adorned with a gold band that may have been a wedding ring. The ring was marked 14K, and the size was seven and a half. It was described as not unusual in any way. Police were able to determine it was made by Certified Metals Company in Rutley, New Jersey. Granby Police Chief John Kirchhoff commenced the process of checking area missing persons reports to see if they could match up Granby Girl with someone known to be missing. They initially assumed that she might be a student of one of the local women's colleges. She wore a wedding ring, and young women got married younger back then, With so many colleges in the area, it was a good hunch. But checks with the administration at those schools showed that no students were missing. In fact, no area women had been reported missing at all. It was felt unlikely that the unidentified woman hailed from Granby. Chief Kirchhoff confirmed that his office had received a number of calls from families seeking missing loved ones, but none matched the characteristics of Granby Girl. One local motel owner called in a tip that a woman matching Gramby Girl's description had stayed at his establishment, but police were able to find her, and she was very much alive. The state police handled the bulk of the investigation into the Gramby Girl homicide case, and they did all the usual things. They sent her clothing to the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab in Boston for analysis. They canvassed the neighborhood in which Gramby Girl was found, hoping that someone might have seen a car pulled over or heard something. But since they weren't sure when Granby Girl had been placed in the woods, this was sort of a long shot. In January of 1979, with the investigation into the identity of Gramby Girl at a standstill, the state police released a description of her clothing in hopes that it would trigger recognition by someone. But by the end of that month, State Police Lieutenant George Powers told the media that two leads that had been generated by the description and photographs of the clothing failed to identify Gramby Girl. We're right back to base one, he said. In February, Powers said, quote, The case will remain open forever, but there isn't anything we, the state police, can do to pursue it. We are depending on someone else to come forward, End quote. Unfortunately, no one did come forward, and the case remained stalled. By 1985, it had not progressed. Lieutenant Powers said he had tried to track down where the wedding band had been purchased, but based on the manufacturer's distribution area, he learned, quote, The ring could have been sold anywhere. Powers had also contacted a local woman's clothing retailer and asked them to look at the clothing found on the body. But none of it was recognizable, and that lead also fizzled. Lieutenant Powers told the Daily Hampshire Gazette that Tufts Medical School was in possession of Granby Girl's skull and had determined that she was likely of Southern European origin. Of course, in America, that doesn't narrow things down. Another theory that was pursued was Granby Girl's badly decayed teeth, which indicated she might have been a heroin user. Again, that didn't help to focus the investigation. Lieutenant Powers pointed out about the futility of the murder case, If you don't know who the victim is, how can you investigate? Police even went so far as to work with a psychic who claimed that the missing bullet was at the scene. A thorough search of the area turned up nothing. Eventually, Gramby Girl was entered into all the unidentified and missing persons databases that sprang up over the years—NCIC, NamUs, NCMEC, the Doe Network—but no leads turned up. Even though her skull was retained by Tufts, Gramby Girl was buried in the West Street Cemetery three days after her remains were discovered. A plain white cross marked her grave, since she had no known name. In honor of the 20th anniversary of the discovery of her remains, In 1998, some citizens of Granby raised $500 to pay for a proper headstone. While it couldn't include Granby Girl's name, it read, quote, unknown, in God's care. And it included the date of November 18, 1978, Granby Girl's burial date. An unknown citizen or group maintained the gravesite and left an angel statue and occasionally flowers. Years passed. A Western Massachusetts woman named Kelly Dillon became obsessed with the case and trying to identify Gramby Girl. She dug into the case, poring over potential matches for Gramby Girl on missing persons databases like the Doe Network and NamUs. She bugged state and local authorities about the case, keeping them accountable and the case active. According to Mass Live, Kelly sent a Freedom of Information request to the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles, asking for a list of all women between the ages of nineteen and twenty six who were about five foot four with brown hair, who failed to renew their driver's license in the four years after 1978. Quote, the registry keeps track of people by height, age, hair, and eye color. After initially telling her that they could not do it, the registry replied that it could. The search turned up a list of three hundred names that were forwarded, as Kelly Dillon had requested, to the state police. End quote. That all from Mass Live. By 2020, it was time to call in the big guns. The DA's office exhumed Granby Girls' remains in April 2020 and obtained samples for modern DNA testing. They then worked with the Minnesota State Police's Captain Jeffrey Cahill to arrange for the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab to conduct the testing. After being told that the sample was too degraded for successful SNP analysis, an analyst at the crime lab suggested that they contact Othram, the Houston-based lab that has had some success working with degraded samples. Massachusetts authorities sent some portions of Granby Girl's remains to Othram in March of 2022. Othram obtained a SNP profile from the remains and started the forensic genealogy process. On January 23, 2023, Othram notified the Granby authorities that they had located a close DNA relative of Granby Girl, a woman in Maryland who was somewhere in the range of a half-sister. Massachusetts authorities requested that their counterparts in Maryland contact this woman, whose name was Lisa. She did not have a missing half-sister that she was aware of, she told the officers who came to her door. Oh, but she did have an aunt who vanished back in 1978. Bingo. Lisa told the investigators that her missing aunt had two sons. After a little digging, they were able to locate one of them in North Carolina. His name was Matthew Dale. Matthew confirmed that his mother had gone missing when he was young. He had already done a DNA test using Ancestry.com, so he forwarded his digital DNA profile to Othram. The lab was able to perform the comparison testing that same day. The results confirmed a parent-child relationship. Massachusetts authorities held a press conference at the Granby Police Station on March 6th. Northwestern District Attorney David Sullivan, First Assistant District Attorney Stephen Gagne, and Granby Police Chief Kevin O'Grady announced the identification of Granby Girl. She was Patricia Ann Tucker. D.A. Sullivan said, quote, Unsolved cases sometimes seem to go cold, but investigators never give up. The Massachusetts State Police, Granby Police, and Northwestern District Attorney's staff worked collaboratively for years to achieve this breakthrough in the investigation, and most importantly, to provide some answers to the victim's family, end quote. First, ADA Stephen Gagne was the member of the DA's staff who was in charge of the Gramby Girl investigation. I spoke to him about the now-active homicide case. At the press conference, he said, quote, while it's satisfying to finally know who Gramby Girl actually was, the investigation won't stop until we identify her killer and bring the family an additional measure of closure and justice. This investigation has spanned decades and will continue until each and every possible lead is explored, end quote. He went on to say, quote, our hope is that today's press conference will generate some additional leads that will help to move this investigation further and ultimately identify a murderer, End quote. OK, so who was Granby Girl? Patricia Ann Tucker was born July 28, 1950, in New Jersey, to parents Roswell Herbert Tucker and Esther Florence Kwuz. It's unclear how many siblings she had, but we know that she had at least one, since it was her niece who was the DNA relative who helped identify her. Detective James White of the Granby PD told me that Patricia was the youngest in her family. She attended Dover High School. Her 1965 yearbook reflects that her quote was Life is a great bundle of little things. For someone who died quite young at age 28, Patricia got married a lot of times. She married Gary Heckman in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, on August 20, 1966, when she was just 16. Gary was a construction worker. They lived in East Stroudsburg. They divorced on June 3, 1969, according to an article in the Pocono Record, Gary filed on grounds of adultery. And within the week, Patricia married Robert Norman Jones in Alexandria, Virginia, on June 9, 1969. He was six years her senior. It's uncertain what happened to that marriage, but Patricia then married Norman Richard Dale on December 3, 1972, in Durham, Connecticut. They were divorced on November 10, 1977. Finally, Patricia got married to Gerald Neil Coleman two days later, on November 12, 1977, in Middletown, Connecticut. In two of her three earlier marriages, Patricia had two sons. One was Matthew Dale, whose DNA helped confirm her identity. The other son has not been named and did not reside with Patricia, but with his father. So when and where did Patricia go missing? That's a question to which there's no clear answer. She was married to Gerald Neal Coleman at the time of her death. The couple purchased a home in April 1978 on the eastern shore of Lake Pocotopog, I think that's right, on Chaucer Road in East Hampton, Connecticut, 20 miles southeast of Hartford. That was Patricia's last known address. Her son Matthew Dale lived with the couple. He barely remembers his mother, but was able to give the investigators some very important information. He remembers being dropped off at the Chicopee, Massachusetts, home of an acquaintance of the Coleman's named Laura Holmes. The Coleman's told Laura that they needed some time to look for an apartment. The date on which Matthew was dropped off at the Holmes' house on Taylor Street was August 8, 1978 so investigators know that Patricia was still alive at that time. But Matthew never saw his mother again. Modern investigators recently tracked down this Laura Holmes, who was luckily still alive and able to relay what little she knows. She was an acquaintance of Patricia's or Gerald's, it's unclear which. She told them that, indeed, on August 8, 1978, Patricia and Gerald both appeared at her house and asked her to watch the five-year-old boy while they ran an errand. Neither of them ever returned. The old reports reflect that Laura received a phone call after a few days indicating that the couple would return soon, but the old reports don't reflect who the caller was. After a few days, Laura contacted Child Protective Services. That agency was not able to contact Patricia. Matthew was placed for a very short time in a group home and then was collected and raised by his biological father, Norman Dale. All Matthew has of his mother are some baby books she made for him, a painting of hers, and a photo of her. One would think that the involvement of Child Protective Services would trigger someone to look for Patricia. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what happened or why an alert was never issued that she was missing. One thing we do know is that her husband, Gerald Coleman, never reported her missing. He died in a Massachusetts state prison in 1996, with no known mention to anyone of what had happened to his wife. ADA Gagagne said at the press conference quote, "The investigation into Patricia's disappearance has thus far revealed no record whatsoever of Gerald Coleman ever reporting his wife Patricia missing. One might expect that your own spouse would report you missing," end quote." As you can detect from the tone of that remark, authorities consider Gerald Coleman to be the prime suspect in the murder of his wife, Patricia Ann Tucker. A.D.A. Gagne understated things when he judiciously said publicly, quote, Gerald Coleman, although deceased, is certainly at a minimum a person of strong interest in Patricia's disappearance and death, end quote. Gagne told me that they have not uncovered any evidence that points away from Gerald Coleman and toward anyone else as Patricia's killer. So now we know that Patricia was alive in early August 1978. Investigators believe that she was killed almost immediately thereafter. This means that the original investigators back in 78 overestimated the amount of time she'd been dead. If she was slain right after Matthew was dropped off, then she had only been deceased about three months when she was found. So why wasn't Patricia identified earlier? Well, part of the problem was that Patricia had no known nexus to the area in which her body was found. Her parents lived in New Jersey, and she and her husband resided in Connecticut. Her remains were found in Massachusetts. And as I said, her husband didn't report her missing. As for her parents, there are some indications that they made attempts to contact authorities in the Garden State, but they had no luck in tracking her down. That's because by that time, no doubt she was lying in a random patch of woods in another state to which her connection, if any, was unclear. Patricia's father died soon after she did in 1982. Her mom passed in 2011. It wasn't until decades later after she was identified that investigators noted that Patricia was last seen at Laura Holmes' house in Chicopee, Mass., and was later found deceased in Granby, Mass., 23 miles away. It's possible, based on the geographic proximity, that she died the very same day that little Matthew was dropped off. In my mind, at least, it seems apparent that Gerald Coleman engineered some kind of ruse to drop Matthew off at Laura's house and spirited his wife away with malevolent intent. So what do we know about Patricia's husband, Gerald Coleman, whom investigators have identified as a person of interest in her murder? Matthew Dale, Patricia's son, had no further contact with Coleman after he and Patricia dropped Matthew at Laura Holmes' house on August 8th. Coleman vanished. The home that Coleman and Patricia had purchased in April 78 went into foreclosure late that year. It seems Coleman wanted to sever all ties with Patricia Tucker. Coleman has quite a record. He was arrested in Hartford in 1962 at age 22 for breach of the peace. He was charged with grand larceny in 1964, listing his address as a motel in Hampton. That was a case where he defrauded a woman named Bessie Crawford out of $460 by posing as a termite inspector and telling her that her home was infested. Then, in 1968, Coleman was again arrested in Hartford, this time for attempted kidnapping, aggravated assault, and carrying a firearm. It's unclear how much time he served, but we know that he was out and able to marry Patricia by 1977. Then he went off the grid again. He resurfaced in November 1994, being arrested, charged, and convicted in December 95 for rape, indecent assault, and battery, and assault with a dangerous weapon. This was for the sexual assault of a woman he met in a bar. Coleman went to state prison after that conviction and died of natural causes there in 1996. He is buried on the grounds of the Concord State Prison as no one claimed his remains. Note that while Coleman was convicted in the 1968 incident for carrying a gun, modern investigators have not been able to connect him to any particular firearm. And since the bullet was not recovered in Patricia's case, to do so would not necessarily be informative. So all we know is that he had possessed guns in the past. Now back to the press conference. ADA Stephen Gagne said officials are eager to speak with anyone who knew Patricia, especially people who might be able to shed any light on her relationship with her husband, Gerald Coleman. Gagne said, quote, Until a couple of months ago, we didn't even know who Patricia was. And in any investigation, Knowing who the person who lost their life was, knowing who was in their circle and who was in their lives, that, more often than not, leads you to the person who had something to do with their death, or at least who knows something about their death. At this point, the investigation into Patricia's murder remains as active and ongoing as it's been in decades. At this stage, we do not yet formally have probable cause to charge anyone with Patricia's murder. But our hope in holding this press conference here today is to bring renewed attention to this case that will hopefully trigger some additional leads in this investigation. Gagney then read the following statement from Matthew Dale, the son of Patricia Tucker. 50-year-old Matthew was present but opted not to speak. His statement reads, quote, First, I would like to say thank you to everyone in trying to identify my mother and wrapping your arms around her, especially the community of Granby. Thank you for never giving up on her. At least I have some answers now after 44 years. It's a lot to process, but hopefully, closure can begin now. Thank you again. At the press conference, Gagne presented a black-and-white booking photo of Coleman taken by the Hampton, Connecticut authorities in connection with his 1994 arrest there. He requested that any associates of Coleman's – neighbors, business associates, cellmates – call the authorities and share what they know. Gagne said that if Coleman let something slip about Patricia, or even just an unnamed wife, it might be very significant. Any detail could help. The DA's office is in the process of analyzing hairs found on Patricia's clothing and the belt found around her neck for DNA evidence. Of course, if they somehow find unknown male DNA on those items, it could innocently belong to her husband, Gerald Coleman. Investigators would then exhume him in order to conduct the testing. If it's a match, then the question becomes whether the location of that male DNA, for example, on the end of the belt used to drag Patricia's body, is probative of Gerald Coleman's guilt. Anyone with information about this case is encouraged to contact the Granby Police Department by phone at 413-467-9222, email at jwhite at granbypd.org, or by submitting a message through their website, www.granbypd.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash dnaid. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash podcast. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at DNA ID podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Bettencourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.